So we are continuing with uh, the um, chapter on unapprehendability. And before I continue with the uh, the next section of the, the reading, I thought I'd um, read the uh, those two suttas, the one uh, to Chitta the house with Chitta the householder. And then the Eastern Gatehouse. So uh, you all remember that um, yesterday there was this uh, dialogue between Chitta and uh, the Niganta Nataputta. So this is Sutta number eight in the Chitta Sangyutta. So the connected discourses um, with the householder Chitta, who's a very wise and um, eloquent um, Dhamma teacher, practitioner. And uh, uh, if you recall yesterday's reading, it was it hinged around um, him um, being misunderstood. And uh, so uh, I'll just read the uh, the passage. Now on that occasion, Nigantanata Buddha had arrived at Machikasanda, together with a large retinue of Nigantas, his disciples. Chitta the householder heard about this, and together with a number of lay followers, approached the Nigantanata Buddha. He exchanged greetings with Nigantanata Putta, and when they concluded their greetings and cordial talk, sat down to one side. Then Nigantanata Putta then said to him, Householder, do you have faith in the ascetic Gautama when he says, There is a concentration without thought and examination. There is a cessation of thought and examination. And then Chitta uh, says, In this matter, Venerable Sir, I do not go by faith in the Blessed One when he says, there is a concentration without thought and examination. There is a cessation of thought and examination. When this was said, Nigantanata Buddha looked up proudly towards his own retinue and said, See, this serves how straightforward is this chitta the householder, how honest and open. One who thinks that thought and examination can be stopped might imagine that... And my eyes are watering here. One might imagine that he could catch the wind in a net or arrest the current of the river Ganges with his own fist. <clears throat> and then uh, there's a little bit more of an exchange. It says, uh, What do you think, Venerable Sir? Which is superior, knowledge or faith? Knowledge, householder, is superior to faith. Well, Venerable Sir, to whatever extent I wish, secluded from either sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I enter and dwell in the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, to whatever extent I wish. Um, since I know and see thus, Venerable Sir, in what other ascetic or Brahmin need I place faith regarding the claim that there is concentration without thought and examination, a cessation of thought and examination? When this was said, Nigantanata Putta looked askance at his own retinue and said, See this, sirs, how crooked is this chitta the householder, how fraudulent and deceptive. So it started off with Chitta saying, um, when, uh, when Nigantanata Buddha says, do you have faith in the Buddha that you can stop thinking? And uh, Chitta says, no, I, I, uh, I don't take it on faith in the Buddha that, uh, that uh, thinking can be stopped. And then uh, Nigantanata Buddha says, wow, how, how marvelous. You see, he's, uh, he not only agrees with me, but he's defying his teacher in public. This is great. So then uh, Chitta explains that it's on his own experience. So then the note on that 
Sean Bikubodi's wonderful uh, footnotes, uh, he says, uh, the Pali for, for, uh, for that, um, uh, I do not go by faith in the Blessed One, the Pali for that, if you're interested, is Nakvahang etapante bhagavato sadhaya gachami. Nakvahang etapante bhagavato sadhaya gachami. I don't go by, uh, I don't say that by going uh, by faith in the Buddha alone. So then the, uh, the other sutta that uses that same phrase is the one I mentioned called the, um, the Eastern Gatehouse. And this is in the Indriya Sanyutta, the connected discourses about the, the Indriyas, the, uh, the five faculties, that's uh, faith, energy, mindfulness, um, concentration, and wisdom, five uh, Indriya. And this sutta uh, goes like this. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in the eastern gatehouse. There the Blessed One addressed the Venerable Sariputta thus. Sariputta, do you have faith? The faculty of faith, when developed and cultivated, has the deathless as its ground, the deathless as its destination, the deathless as its final goal. The faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, and the faculty of wisdom. When developed and cultivated, has the deathless as its ground, the deathless as its destination, the deathless as its final goal. So he asks that question in relationship to all of the five spiritual faculties. Then, Venerable Sariputta says, Venerable Sir, I do not go by faith in the Blessed One about this, but the faculty of faith, uh, um, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, when developed and cultivated, has the deathless as its ground, the deathless as its destination, the deathless as its final goal. Those by whom this has not been known, seen, understood, realized, and contacted with wisdom, they would have to go by faith in others about this. Um, I am one, Venerable Sir, by whom this has been known, seen, understood, realized, and contacted with wisdom. I am without perplexity or doubt about this. Um, <clears throat> and uh, that the, um, the five faculties have deathless as their ground, as their destination, as the final goal. Good, good, Sariputta. Those by whom this has not been known, they would have to go by faith in others about this. But those by whom this has been known, they would be without perplexity or doubt about this. Uh, and so that the, the Buddha is praising uh, Sariputta there. So the way that Ajahn Chah tells the story is not exactly as you find it in the suttas, but he's, as uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi pointed out, he's conflated those, um, the account of, of, uh, of this and then also the... Um, that commentary from the um, Dhammapada. So I just wanted to share those with you. So that's number uh, Sutta number 44 in the Indriya Sangyuta. So Sangyuta, section 48, Sutta number 44, if you want to follow that up on your own. So any questions on that before continuing? Yes? With regards to faith, uh, well, it's you don't have to take something on trust in that particular instance. Yeah. He's saying that uh, you don't have to believe in others because you know for yourself. Okay. I mean, the reason I ask the question is there's, there's a lot of uh, sort of these days you get like 12 step programs that ask people 
to trust in a higher power. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I've got a friend who's, who's following one of your programs, and the issue that people of our thing have, you can go to university mm-hmm. and things like that, is that you ask so many questions, and maybe you create so much doubt that you just can't have the faith. You know, like, mm-hmm. you need to know something in order to have faith. Yeah. But they're asking you to have faith yes. first. So I'm just trying to reconcile that in, in well, the best way I know of reconciling that is to find some Buddhist pe- uh, teachers who talk about the Buddhist version of the 12-step program. <laughs> of which there are a few. I can give you addresses. I know a few. Noah Levine, Kevin Griffin. There's a few. Because that, that's a problem. I, mean, I, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there's a lot of people on 12-step programs and uh, in recovery of various kinds from a... Uh, uh, a, a fully Californian array of addictions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Op- option paralysis for what you're going to be addicted to then. <laughs> but, um, and so it's a problem that people run into a lot because they don't have faith in, uh, in theistic religion, but they want, to, uh, they, they want to work with their addictions of uh, various different kinds. And so um, there are a number of people, Buddhist practitioners, who have been addicts themselves and who've um, uh, developed the, a languaging around the, the um, uh, you know AA programs and twelve step programs uh, um, that uh, cast the, 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 the same process into a non theistic language. There's also a group connected to London Insight that is um, uh, that I've visited. They they come here as well. That have their own little recovery group. That uh, and so it's a, it's a widespread issue. And um, uh, so I feel that it's totally legit to take a particular form and, and work it, so, you know, relanguage it so that it, it, it uh, is meaningful for you. And, and that's one of the, I mean, putting the whole teachings into English and, and, and having these, these readings is, uh, and the kind of thing I like to encourage is that sort of make, uh, making your own inquiries and exploring and then. Um, finding out how what you're hearing in terms of the teaching matches onto how things seem to work for you, and that uh, so it's quite okay to to sort of rejig the language or or if a particular expression sort of jumps off the page and says yes that's it and the other ninety eight percent of what's on the page just you know just slides by without without having any impact then you use that two percent that says that's it that that's saying what I need to to to, to hear and taking that and, and using that so that you have to be a, to a degree you have to be creative about practicing studying Dhamma and practicing Dhamma you have to kind of make it work for you it won't just you can't kind of have it done to you it's like it has to be an engagement to get the language to, to come alive so let's continue with uh, with this reading then the intangible, inscrutable, yet powerfully present quality which is being referred to in these dialogues was a feature of early Buddhist iconography in the pre-Greek era in northern India. So Alexander, uh, sometimes known by some as Alexander the Great, by others as Alexander the Accursed, depending on which, which uh, army you are, <laughs> you are part of. If you're, if you're from Persia, he was Alexander the Accursed. If you're from Macedonia or Greece, he was Alexander the Great. 
but he invaded India um, the two or three hundred years after the Buddha. And so in the, the wake of the, um, uh, the Greek arrival in India, then they started using uh, the human form in Buddhist imagery. So the, um, uh, some of the earliest Buddha rupas, are, the Buddha looks like a, a Greek god, looks like Apollo, uh, as a sort of sun god. Also, because in Buddhist mythology, the, the Sakyans were descended from the sun god. But um, before that, in the, the Buddha's time, and then in the couple of hundred years, two or three hundred years after, the, the Buddha was not represented in human form. For example, at the great stupa at Amravati in Andhra Pradesh, and on many of the monuments of King Asoka, the Buddha was not represented in human form. There were a variety of ways in which his presence was depicted. There's a, fair, a pair of footprints, as we have over the door of the nursing kuti, an empty chair, a stupa, the Bodhi tree, a Dharma wheel, all images designed to evoke something of the presence but explicitly avoiding, encapsulating, and confining the Buddha principle within the narrowness of the human form. So <clears throat> one of the, the things that appealed, why Lumpur Sumedha came across the name Amravati, and um, how he was introduced to, to that as an ancient uh, Buddhist shrine in India, was uh, when he was a fairly young bhikkhu, he was staying down at Ajahn Buddha Das's monastery in, in uh, southern Thailand, Suwamok, and... Uh, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa was a very creative uh, and um, imaginative Dhamma teacher. So uh, the, he used all kinds of different approaches and, and uh, uh, ideas there at uh, Suomok. So they have a um, what they have called, they call the spiritual theatre has you know the imagery from all sorts of different religions, even European folklore, kind of painted up in murals all over all over it. It's actually shaped like a ship, like a huge boat. As a, uh, as a sort of means to carry you across the flood. Anyway, so part of the iconography that they had at Suanmok, there was a monk there, rather like our Ajahn Vimalo, who was very gifted as an artist, and he took, uh, and uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa really liked this uh, early Buddhist imagery of how the, the Buddha was never represented in human form. There's this, this kind of hinting at the presence, but not limiting the Buddha principle into a uh, so being defined by the human body or the human uh, human figure, and so Ajahn Buddhadasa liked that as a principle. So he asked this monk to create copies of what uh, uh, he, these pictures that he had, like in a coffee table book of the the, um, uh, the stupa and the, the the drawings of the carvings, the reliefs, and the the images that were from the original great stupa at Amaravati. So these are then. Um, dotted around Suanmok on various walls and in, in um, uh, halls and such like. And so uh, when uh, the young Ajahn Sumato was there and he saw these around and, uh, and Ajahn Buddhadasa explained where they'd come from and, and uh, the, the symbolism, uh, then that really appealed to Lumpur Sumato as well. So many years ago, long before Amravati, um, uh, one day at, uh, at Chidhurst, um, just sitting in the, in the reception room there, one day, uh, this was about 1980 or maybe 81, uh, Lumpur uh, Sumedha made the comment, one day I'm going to found a great Buddhist city and call it Amravati. <laughs> uh, I was there yeah, when, he said, <laughs> when he said it. And he liked the name. Uh, uh, and uh, then also, as you probably know, he 
when the idea to, to establish this place was, was formed, it was uh, both because the nuns' community was expanding and they needed extra places for the, more space for the nuns' community to develop. And they also wanted to have a place that was um, suitable for uh, running meditation retreats because it was complicated and expensive to keep hiring places. And also because it was in the thick of the arms race between the Soviet Union and the US and there was what they, were, uh, what they called uh, Mutually Assured Destruction, MAD, which is a very suitable acronym for MAD. <laughs> With a, a limited nuclear war in Europe was a very common term. And uh, so then people like the French and the Germans and the Poles were wondering which was going to be the battleground where this limited nuclear war was going to happen, and Britain as well. So there was huge fear and protests about nuclear weapons. And so Longpo wanted to, uh, say, establish a counterpoint to that fear and, and uh, um, uh, the uh, mentality of conflict and, and warfare. And so uh, the place of the deathless was a very, very natural counterpoint to so much fear of death. So that was why this place has the name Amravati. <clears throat> and in the imagery of, uh, of Amravati, one of the, the forms of the, the, the Buddha is represented as, as an empty chair, like a, a dhamma seat, not like a, an armchair, like, but a, a dhamma seat, often just with a round cushion on it, uh, like just like the zafus that we have. Uh, and then you see also crowds of, of uh, devas around the back, or people you know, bowing down, uh, lay people, or monastics bowing down, and there's this just chair with a, with a cushion on it. So, you know, it's an empty chair. So when they were building the temple, and, and Lumpur Sumedha was discussing ideas with Tom Hancock, the architect, um, he really liked this idea of having an empty chair as the Buddha image. Um, and then George Sharp, who was an old friend of, of Tom, he thought that was a great idea as well. <laughs> so that was the plan. When, when the temple was being, was being designed, that was the plan to have, and they were, and Tom was was um, using the imagery from the carvings from the Amravati stupa to create the chair that would be on the shrine, and then so that was the plan. It was sort of in process. So I don't, I don't know if I, we ever kept any of Tom's sketches on that, but uh, anyway, after a few months, um, I think uh, Lumpur Sumedhas has a very strong imagination, and I think he saw this, this vista of the next 20 or 30 years of having to explain to 500,000 visitors why there's a chair on the shrine and can I give you a Buddha image because you obviously haven't got one you know? and so he could just sort of, I think he, he, he could see this because many of us thought it was a great idea that, oh yeah it's really good what a, you know what a fine and wonderful teaching like the non-embodiment or the non-representation the non-humanization of the of the Buddha principle, and he just thought, oh, it's going to be such a headache. You know, <laughs> every visitor, every school group, you know, all the, you know, how many times am I going to have to tell this story? Let's just have a Buddha image. <laughs> so then he uh, he scratched that idea, and uh, of the empty chair, and uh, uh, and we have the the rupa that we do, but also. Um, the uh, we, we in terms of the uh, the ongoing development of the site, we also decided to use the imagery from ancient Amravati as a sort of theme to bind the the new building. As the buildings get replaced bit by bit, then we'll, we'll uh, endeavour to use that uh, that ancient iconography as uh, a, a theme through the 
the, the buildings to come. The unapprehendability principle did not fade away completely with the introduction of the human form into religious sculpture and the emergence of, of the style of Buddha images which we are so uh, which we are so familiar sorry and the emergence of the style of Buddha images which are so familiar today. In Borobudur, one of the largest Buddhist shrines in the world, the designers and architects conceived a way of displaying this subtle and esoteric teaching in the black volcanic stone of Java, where the great edifice is to be found. And by coincidence, the, the Buddha image, uh, the stupa out in the, um, in the field, the meadow, with the Buddha image inside it, that's a copy of one of the, the um, little stupas from the, uh, the great stupa at Borobudur in Java. Each successive layer of the stupa from the ground up is given to a depiction of some aspect of the Buddha's life and lives. The lower layers carry the bas reliefs of the colourful rough and tumble of the incidents from the Buddha's previous lives. So the lowest levels of the stupa, the bottom two stories are these many, many Jataka tales of the, of the Buddha's previous lives as, as a person or as an animal. And then those, that he's always represented in human form or animal form, which is an animal story. So the Bodhisattva is represented in human form then. <clears throat> the, uh, see. Above these come the events of his last birth, Siddhartha Gautama, the enlightenment and stories of his teaching career. Above these, the square form of the stupa transmutes to the circular. So you have several layers that are square, and then you have um, uh, a circular layer on top of those. And the... the, the um, uh, the square form of the stupa transmutes to the circular with an impressive guard of images of the Dhyani Buddha Amoga Siddhi, all in the Abhaya or Fearlessness Mudra, rimming the parapet of the highest of the square levels. At the same stage, small stupas appear in concentric formation, with regular square holes in the bell of each one, revealing a Buddha image within. So the, the, the last of the square layers, you get a, a circle of these um, smaller stupas and they have square holes and you can see the Buddha image inside. On uh, one level higher and further rings of this same model of small stupa have diamond-shaped perforations in them instead, like the one in the field, somewhat smaller than the square holes and rendering the Buddha images within yet harder to discern. By the next level we've reached the summit and found a much larger and notably plain stupa crowning the structure. So after these um, little stupas with the diamond-shaped holes, then you have the, the, the top of the stupa, and it's a, a very plain and undecorated but sort of and solid stone form. Uh, and there are no holes through which to see inside. So it's a completely smooth surface without carvings on the outside either. Needless to say, the 13 centuries or so that have passed since Borobudur was first constructed have wrought major ravages to the shrine. In the 1970s, UNESCO launched a restoration campaign and the vast complex has since been repaired and returned to something of its original glory. During the course of, the, of excavations, the great stupa at the crown was opened and entered. Its interior revealed that it too had a Buddha image inside but when it was examined closely, 
it was found to have a strange, altogether unique feature. So when they opened up the stone stupa on top, it has a Buddha image inside. Um, and when they, they uh, looked at the, the, the Buddha image in there, they, what they found was one of the hands was unformed and seemed to meld into the leg upon which it rested. So it's the Buddha sitting cross-legged, but the, you know, the right hand just sort of merges with the leg. It's unformed and just sort of, sort of blurs into, a, into the, the plain rock. So one of the hands was unformed and seemed to meld into the leg upon which it rested. In several places, raw rock seemed to interplay with the living being who was represented there. And so I think um, uh, like on, one of the, on one side of his face or on his shoulder, that's also uncarved, and the, you get the kind of the rough uh, rock surface uh, and the, the face kind of emerging out of it and the shoulder appearing out of this um, uncarved rock. The initial supposition was that the image was unfinished and maybe installed, quote, in a hurry, unquote, for some undefined reason. One would have thought that a thousand years or so would have given plenty of time to replace it or finish it, <laughs> if that was what was intended. Instead, the half-defined image seems to fit perfectly the theme of ascent of the holy mountain, being unified uh, with increasing unapprehendability. The higher, you go, the higher up you go, the more impressive, yet the more out of reach the Buddha principle becomes. The walled-in nature of the ultimate image and its half-emergence from the virgin stone. Is he here? Is he gone? What is he? Expresses well the deep, immeasurable, hard-to-fathom, untraceable, unapprehendable nature of the Tathagata. So does that make sense? Follow that? And it, it really, uh, it's, it's one of those um, uh, striking things. When you, I went there with, with Lumpur Sumedho many, many years ago, and they they have these sort of little notices describing the, the the stupa, and it really does say you know it was probably finished in a hurry, and you think, how much money did this thing cost? You know the incredible resources, the labor, the decades it must have taken to build it, and then the crowning Buddha image is well it's just it's not quite done, but I'll sort of stick it in there, you know. <laughs> His Majesty won't notice, you know. Don't don't anyone tell him. It's like yeah right. Of course that's what's going to happen. So uh, anyway, it, it does say that. With well, actually, I think we, we think it was finished in a hurry, and they just sort of shoved it in there at the last minute and didn't have time to finish the carving. But uh, it, it seemed to me quite clear that it was very, very deliberate. That um, that unfinishedness and that what, what is it? Is it a person? Is it not a person? Is it? It's the raw rock. Oh no! It's a, it's a. Is he, is he going? Is he arriving? What what's what is it? That that's the. Um, an, an echo of the same principle of you know, the Buddha can't be defined in terms of the of the five khandas. It's also worthy of note that such a principle has not solely been the, the province of Buddhist thought and expression. There are also strong traditions of non-representation, quote-unquote, in both Judaism and Islam. Both of these theistic religious forms, particularly in their more orthodox expressions, absolutely forbid the depiction of God in physical form. The name of God is considered to be unutterable, to be pronounced but once a year by the high priest alone in the Holy of Holies, in the case of Judaism. In some Jewish writing, the form G-D is used, or Y-H 
for Yahweh, Yod Hey Yhbh as for Yahweh, to resonate the same respectful prohibition. So you know that it's saying God, but it's like G dash D, like. So you get in in the states, you get some uh, like Jewish newspapers where that's always you know the way they, the standard way they they write the word God is with a, a hyphen instead of or a dash instead of a the middle O in the in the word. The unique and dazzling artistic forms of calligraphy and geometric patterns employed in Islamic tradition arose because, for some lineages, not only is God not to be represented in physical form, but also via any living creation. Thus only abstract forms can be used in their religious artwork. The principle is also found within Christian tradition, particularly among the mystics and contemplatives. For example, and this is a quote from Gregory of Nyssa, when we give a thing a name, we imagine we have got hold of it. We imagine that we have got hold of being. Perhaps we should do better not to flatter ourselves too soon that we can name God. And then Meister Eckhart, God who has no name, who is beyond names, is inexpressible. Both of these passages, along with the observation that in the Jewish tradition an empty throne was also used as a symbol for the presence of God, are quoted in a chapter entitled Prayer Without Language in the Mystical Tradition in the book The Solace of Fierce Landscapes by Belden C. Lane. In a similar vein, as Wittgenstein put it in the denouement of his Tractatus, what we cannot speak about we must pass over in silence. Wovon man nicht sprechen kann, darüber muss man schweigen. Is my German improving, Christian? <laughs> <laughs> Well, apologies for butchering the language. So, what what we can? Hmm? Yeah, I, I was I was contemplating the the uh, these words, the English translation and the German, and it's very interesting. Um, the English version is you have to pass pass over, over in silence. Silence. And the German double was from Schweigen. Um, the German version has, has kind of two meanings. One is for all layers. You don't speak about it. But Schweigen can also be contemplative. So Schweigen is, is, is a process. Uh -huh. and, um, he probably thought very carefully what words to write. When it's the last sentence. This is the whole chapter. It's just those that that one sentence. That's the whole of chapter seven of his Tractatus. That's that one sentence. That's the whole chapter seven. Just so he thought very carefully. So that's really interesting. So you could, in, in a way, you could say you, you need to meditate. <laughs> Probably that's the best way he could say it without without being uh, criticized as a heretic. Any questions? Clarifications? I yes. I was just about the liberation of the shrines. Um, that came, most of it came from Burma. A part of it was repaired by Ajahn Vimala when he was a layman. <laughs> <laughs> the, the part of the aura, the kind of, the, 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 those aren't kind of giant, giant ears. 
Okay, that's a sort of aura representation. One of the, I think the one on the left, the, the lower part was broken off. Imagine Vimolo rebuilt it from marble, dust, and resin, such things. Some artists were, and, and uh, sort of antique people were horrified. But uh, Lomposomedo commissioned him to do it, to rebuild it. But, um, yeah, it's from Burma. It's not marble, it's some other kind of white stone. I'm not sure <coughs> what. Um, but, uh, it's not. It's uh, it's not alabaster. It's not marble. It's some other kind of. It's really, really heavy. Incredibly heavy. Hmm? Scotland. Huh? Who who was it who donated it? Do you remember? Max Mackay James. So to continue, we have um, <coughs> the key part of this chapter, really, we come to now. The clearest analyses of the principle of unapprehendability to be found in the Pali Canon occur side by side in the connected discourses on the Khandas. So that is um, section 22 of the Sangyutta Nikaya. So there are these two suttas, one to Anuradha and one to Yamaka. Once some wanderers of other sects went to the Venerable Anuradha and asked him, Friend Anuradha, one who is a Tathagata, highest of beings, the supreme among beings, one attained to the supreme attainment. When a Tathagata is describing them, in which of the four following instances do they describe them? After death a Tathagata is, or after death a Tathagata is not, or after death a Tathagata both is and is not, or, you can probably guess, <laughs> After death, a Tathagata neither is nor is not. And then Anuradha responds, Friends, a Tathagata in describing them describes them apart from these four instances. When this was said, they remarked, This must be a new bhikkhu, not long gone forth, or if he's an elder, he must be foolish and incompetent. It's a brief conversation. <laughs> He must be foolish and incompetent, then having no confidence in the Venerable Anuradha, and thinking him newly gone forth or foolish, they got up from their seats and went away. Then soon after they had gone, he wondered, hmm, if they had questioned me further, how should I have answered them, so that I might say what the Blessed One says, without misrepresenting him, with what is not fact, and might express ideas in accordance with the Dhamma, with nothing legitimately deducible from my assertions that would, provi that would provide grounds or condemning me. So he went to the Blessed One and told him about this. And by the way, this is, his name is Anuradha, so that's similar to Anuruddha, who was an Arahant and a relative of the Buddha, but they're different people. So this is Anuradha with a, a long A in the middle, Anuradha. So um, they just got, these other people got up and just walked away, and so he ponders, well, what, uh, what, if I had had to explain more, what would I have said that would 
be in accordance with the, the Buddha's teaching about this and that uh, would uh, not be grounds for criticism. <clears throat> so he went to the Blessed One and told him about this. And the Buddha uh, asked him, How do you conceive this, Anuradha? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Sir. And, and then the Buddha continued, as he had done in the Anatalakana Sutta, which he had spoken to his friends, the group of five bhikkhus, uh, after, uh, shortly after the Enlightenment. And after that he asked, so that's the analysis of the five khandhas in terms of uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not-self. So he goes through the whole of the Anatalakana Sutta, as we chant here quite regularly. Um, and in that, the five khandhas, the form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, uh, are all uh, explored and, uh, and uh, uh, realize that they are uh, transient, impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self which then encourages a non-grasping, non-identification with those five khandhas. So after that, the Buddha then said, How do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see material form as the Tathagata? No, Venerable Sir. Do you see feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness as the Tathagata? No, Venerable Sir. How do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as immaterial form? No, Venerable Sir. Do you see the Tathagata as apart from material form? No, Venerable Sir. Do you see the Tathagata as in feeling, apart from feeling, in perception, apart from perception, in mental formations, apart from mental formations, in consciousness, apart from consciousness? No, Venerable Sir. How do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as being all five khandhas together, material form, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness. No, Venerable Sir. How do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as that which has no material form, no feeling, no perception, no mental formations, no consciousness? No, Venerable Sir. Anuradha, when a Tathagata is here and now unapprehendable by you, as true and established, is it fitting to say of him, friends, one who is a Tathagata, highest of beings, the supreme among beings, one attained to the supreme attainment. When a Tathagata is describing them, he describes them apart from the following four instances. After death, a Tathagata is. After death, a Tathagata is not. Or after death, a Tathagata both is and is not. Or after death, a Tathagata neither is nor is not. No, Venerable Sir. Good, good Anuradha. What I describe now as formally is Dukkha, and the ending of Dukkha. <clears throat> so that's a little hard to, to follow, perhaps, but... Um... <laughs> so, it's, uh, uh, it starts off, uh, is the Tathagata uh, identified? Is he, do you see him as material form, feeling, perception? Do you see that he, that he is that? He's identified with it? No. Do you see that he's, uh, he's inside it? No. Do you see he's apart from it? No. Do you see that he's all of those together? No. Do you see that he? Um, uh, do you see that he doesn't have uh, those those uh, five khandhas? No. So you, any way of relating what the Buddha is, having, not having, being, not being, inside, outside, none of that applies. And so, and I'll, I'll explain it a little bit more as we go along. But it's like any position of the sort of Buddha principle defined in terms of those doesn't apply. And so, and then he, he sort of 
wraps it up by saying, what I teach is suffering and the ending of suffering. So, to continue. The other closely related to teaching is a dialogue between Venerable Sariputta and a bhikkhu called Yamaka, in whom the view has arisen that, after the death of the body, enlightened beings are, quote, annihilated and they perish, they do not exist after death, unquote. His companions in the holy life benevolently, benevolently endeavor to shift him from this position, but he stubbornly sticks to his opinion. This causes some of them to go off and find Venerable Sariputta to let him know of Yamaka's view. After the day's meditation is over, the wise elder comes to visit Yamaka for a chat. After Venerable Sariputta has established that the word from the brothers on Venerable Yamaka's views is correct, so that, yeah, they, he does have that view, the dialogue then proceeds exactly the same as between the Buddha and Anurada. Happily, in the light of Sariputta's insightful examination, Yamaka relinquishes his view. Then, just to check that he's now got it right, the elder asks him, If, friend Yamaka, they were to ask you, Friend Yamaka, when a bhikkhu is an arahant, one whose heart is pure, what happens to him with the breakup of the body after death? Being asked thus, what would you answer? No pressure. If they were to ask me, friend, I would answer thus. Friends, material form is impermanent. What is impermanent is unsatisfactory. What is unsatisfactory has ceased and passed away. So too with feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. Being asked thus, friend, I would answer in such a way. Good, good friend, Yamaka. The Venerable Sariputta then goes on to draw a potent, if chilling, simile. He compares the five khandas to an, uh, to an assassin, a murderer, to an assassin who wins the confidence of a person and takes up the role of their servant, only in order to get close so that they may, quote, ruin, harm, endanger, and take that person's life. When the would-be murderer becomes aware that the person, quote, has placed trust in them, finding them alone, they would take their life with a sharp knife, unquote. Such is the treacherous re result for the uninstructed worldling who places their trust and takes refuge in the five khandas. There are a few points in these two dialogues which are particularly worthy of note. So, here we go. <laughs> this is the explanation. Firstly, the five modes of relationship posited as possible for a Tathagata in reference to the Khandas, identity with, or being, existing within, existing apart from, having, and not having. There's five. Right? So, Identity with, existing within, existing apart from, having and not having. They describe a comprehensive schema for the habits of identification. As described in chapter 5, all forms of positioning of a self whatsoever, whether in terms of being or non-being, or here, or as here in terms of A, identity, B, location, or C, ownership, all of these have been abandoned by the enlightened ones. This formulation precisely maps the variety of ways in which we tend to define what we are, irrespective of whether such definitions are couched in positive or negative terms. Then, having neatly bundled them together, it points out to us that all definitions are necessarily wrong since they're based on invalid premises, like asking, where exactly in the television 
does the newsreader live? Or, as asked in chapter 9, where is Nibbana located? Or, in chapter 11, when a fire goes out, does it go north, south, east or west? So does that make sense? Say no if it doesn't. Are you, are you with that? A little bit lost. So, um, yeah, it's like uh, the the way that we conceive is that I am in, I am in my body, or I I am outside my body observing my body. Um, <coughs> that that the the or you know, I I am in Amravati or Amravati is in Hertfordshire. That we are we we kind of take those definitions and we take them to be absolutely true and real, um, and so. Uh, oh, you know, uh, I'm I'm so confused. We say clutching my head, you know, like that. I am living. I am somewhere contained in this head. You know, that that's uh, we. Hmm? Oh. <laughs> uh, and so that it's uh, we um, create these different kinds of ident- of of uh, claiming or existing in relationship to the body or feelings, or like uh, you know <coughs> that. Uh, uh, it might be that uh, it's not in relationship to the body, but it's in relationship to an emotion. Like I'm angry, or um, uh, that um, there there's a, a, a holding and an identifying uh, that I am that I am I I am not I'm not feeling angry. I am angry. <laughs> there's a uh, an absorption in in some state. So it's identity with. Or um, location, either sort of being in things or being apart from things, um, or owning. Like, I have the body. I, I, I am the I am the owner of my mind. I am I'm the owner of this body. Or you know, I, I don't. I, there's a me that doesn't own it. Not owning. Right? Like, there's this. I am the awareness that knows the five khandhas. That's what I am. <laughs> yeah, I am the dhamma. I am I am the I am the, that which is awake and knows. That's what I am. So it's still an I am, but it's 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 a I am not connected with that other I I am absolutely. So you've got these five different these five different varieties that are spelled out in that dialogue. <coughs> and so and then the the, um, the the kind of wrongness of the question using that example of where in the television does the newsreader live? It's like well. Yeah, the, the the newsreader doesn't actually live in the TV. They can see them sitting there. But, uh, if you if you open up the back of the TV, and well, nowadays I'm sure it's all just solid state. But you know, in the days when you used to have valves, you know, you open up the back of the TV, you take out a valve, and then the newsreader would vanish. Ah, this is where the newsreader lives in this because she was talking away, and then I took this out, and then she vanished. So here, this is. She lives in here. Yeah, like, <laughs> she's a bit small. Have you got some small cups? You know, have you got a thimble I can borrow. Yes. Can we yes. Yeah, yeah. Because. Uh, it, it's it's because of those kind of identifications. I am in this body. I am in this place. It's exactly so. That's why he said, "I teach suffering and your suffering." So that uh, it's it's a very yeah well well spotted. It's a very close um, parallel teaching.
So to continue. Further to this, one would have thought at first glance that Anurada's response to the wanderers, quote, friends, a Tathagata in describing an enlightened one describes them apart from these four instances. You'd think that was close enough to the mark. He at least seems to be holding the party line on not going along with the familiar quadrilemma, a formulation that appears to cover every conceivable angle of being, certainly uh, one more thorough than any with which the average reader would be acquainted. For the Buddha, however, as this expression fails to accord with the reality, he pulls Anuradha up on it and makes it the occasion for this fine teaching. For in saying that an, un for saying that an enlightened being is, quote, described apart from these four instances, he's unconsciously and tacitly implying that there is some other kind of meta-dimension of being that the quadrilemma has missed and which is the actual abiding place of Tathagatas after the death of the body. Not so. So can you follow that? The English is a bit dense, but um, so unconsciously uh, uh, he's saying that there's there's not he's spelling it out, but there's some kind of other other place that Buddhas dwell. That this just is not in those four, but that there is this kind of um, uh, the Tathagata carries on in a, in a in 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 a different mode than what's defined there, but it's still. Uh, unconsciously creating the same kind of idea. And you know, some other spiritual traditions have more than, than four. In the, they have quadrilemmas, they're kind of different modes. There's one in the, um, I'm trying to remember what, is, what, what the Sanskrit is for it now, but in the, in the Jain tradition, they've actually got a quality of maybe-ness. <laughs> maybe-ness, it might be true. That they got actually, rather than those four, they have seven. I wrote them all down once, just out of curiosity. Um, and there's this wonderful one that's called Maybeness. That um, it might be true, it might not be true. We're not sure, but it, it may be. And it's actually like a sort of philosophical quality of of, uh, of Maybeness. So um, uh, the Buddha uh, calls uh, Anuradha on that and says, "Nah, it's not quite, not quite it." <clears throat> In this light, it's striking how. After the dismantling of all possible subtle position-taking, both suttas relocate the issue to the essence of the teaching, dukkha and the ending of dukkha. These passages resonate with the Buddha's emphatic declaration to Malunkya Putta on why he left certain things undeclared. That's in the Majjhima Nikaya, sutta number 63. Um, while Venerable Yamaka's words in particular are reminiscent of those uttered by the Arahant Bhikkhuni Vajira, and, where, uh, and by the Buddha to Venerable Mahakachana in chapter 5. What arises is only suffering arising, and what ceases is only suffering ceasing. As a footnote to that, this is the Malunkya Putta was uh, a, a, a monk disciple of the Buddha, and so he, he was uh, one of his, um, one of the suttas in the Majjhima, the, I think the Chula Malunkya Putta Sutta, the, the lesser discourse to him. He goes to the Buddha and said, um, if you don't answer these ten philosophical questions, I'm going to disrobe. You know, you don't. You never give a straight answer to these things. You know, is the self the same as the the, the body? Is the body not the same as the self? Is the what's the origin of the universe and what happens to an enlightened being after they pass away? 
And it, you know, if you don't give me an answer to this, I'm going to disrobe. So there, <laughs> and uh, or you know the Pali to that effect. So then the Buddha said, Malunkya Putta, when you when you were ordained, when you took uh, when you when you took on the life of a bhikkhu, did I promise you that if you became a bhikkhu, I would answer these ten questions? No, venerable sir. <laughs> and uh, and then he, uh, he and then he goes on to say, well, why haven't I declared it? Because this is the, the, these things don't conduce to clarity, they don't conduce to peace, they don't conduce to understanding, to to liberation. That's why I don't talk about them. They're, they're undeclared. And uh, what have I talked about? I talked about suffering, origin of suffering, cessation of suffering, the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Why have I declared it? Because it leads to peace, it leads to clarity, it leads to understanding, it leads to liberation. That's why I have declared it. So, Malankya Putta, remember, what has been, what is undeclared is undeclared, what has been declared as being declared. There's a, in the other um, discourse to Malankya Putta, the Maha, then in a very similar way to Anuradha, the um, the, the Buddha says, um, can any of you uh, recount to me what are the five lower fetters, the, the five uh, obstructions to, en- the first five is obstructions to enlightenment. You know, the, the, say that, um, the, the fetters that need to be broken to realize stream entry and being a once returner. And Malankya Putta says, um, they are self, uh, self-view, um, uh, a skeptical doubt, uh, attachment to rules and rites and rituals, conventions. They are the diminution of uh, of raga and the diminution of uh, aversion. And ostensibly, that's the right answer. And the Buddha says, "When have you ever heard me talk in those terms, Malukya Putta? What you got the right answer? Why is the Buddha <laughs> giving him a bad time?" <laughs> It's exactly in the same way. It's like, uh, you know, when have you ever heard me talk like that? But it's the right answer. <laughs> and then the Buddha goes on to explain in this really kind of, in a similar way to sort of setting Anuradha straight. He um, he says, <clears throat> you know, if you answer in that way, Malankyaputta, you can be refuted with the simile of the infant, because a, a, a newborn baby uh, has no sense of, of uh, personality. It doesn't have a problem with self-view. Um, it doesn't experience uh, a skeptical doubt. <laughs> a, new, uh, a, a young, tender infant lying prone does not uh, doesn't have uh, it doesn't have attachment to rites and rituals, and it's free from uh, from raga, from from uh, sense desire, and uh, and uh, aversion. So. Um, you know, if you answer in that way, Malankiputta, then wanderers from other other sects will criticize you by, by using the example of a, you know, a little baby seems to be free of these same fetters. So you shouldn't answer in that way. So that, uh, and then it's a, it's a very wonderful teaching that he then gives how you should answer and qualify what those um, are and, and not be uh, comparing the enlightened mind to the mind of a of a, of a baby. So that's in the. Um, I think that's Sutta number 64. 63 is the, the, um, when Malunkya put a demands that the Buddha uh, answer the ten questions, and 64 is the, um, the one with the, with the baby. Um, the, 
but he's some of them. He he's saying that they don't actually uh, arise, and they're not. You can't say that they're there. Like skeptical doubt, a baby does not have skeptical doubt. But in that in that instance, he's he's saying um, if you talk about those the fetters in those in that way, that it, it looks as though a, 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 a baby is identical with, a, with an enlightened being, but it's not the case. So I mean, you could not, you could make a case that babies have plenty of aversion, <laughs> like that sounds like aversion to me, <laughs> and sense desire. It's like one, 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 one. Yeah. So you could make a case for that, but um, he, the Buddha's just, I think. Uh, it's, I think it's one of those cases of Pali, Pali humor, where it's like, Malunkia Putta, like, finally, Malunkia Putta got something right. I think it was a kind of in joke, my sense is that uh, finally got the, he got, you know, he was not being stupid, he got the right answer, and then the Buddha scolds him. It's like, but I got one, I got one right for a change. Now, how come you, why are you giving me a bad time? And then, he said, he kind of. When you're older, and they have to then let go again, but you didn't have them in ages. Well, the 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 causes for them are there, but the the kind of the because the baby doesn't have language or conceptual thought, they have the 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 conditions for them to ripen haven't arisen yet, but the potential is there. You know, baby is not free of greed, hatred, and delusion. They they just the. the those particular things, the the supporting conditions for them haven't arisen yet. Okay, well it's already ten past seven, but we only started at ten past six. So, I could finish the chapter if you'd like. Have you had enough already? No? Okay, keep on. <coughs> The following dialogue between the Venerable Mahakotita and the Venerable Sariputta echoes the same principle but uses a different angle of approach. And this is from the Book of the Fours in uh, the um, Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. And this is the source of our uh, the, the um, inscription we had on our greetings card, not last year, the year before, 2015. When the six sense spheres fade and cease without remainder, is it the case that there is anything else? Do not say that, my friend. Is it the case that there is not anything else? Okay, so the, the question was, when the six sense spheres, are, you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and the, and the mind sense of all kinds, when they cease and, uh, and fade without remainder, is it the case there is anything else? Don't say that, friend. Is it the case there is not anything else? Don't say that, my friend. Is it the case that there both is and is not anything else? Do not say that, my friend. Is it the case that there is neither, nor nor is there not anything else? Do not say that, my friend. Okay. Being asked if there is anything else, you say, do not say that, my friend. Being asked if there's not anything else, if there both is and is not anything else, if there neither is nor is not anything else, you say, do not say that, my friend. Now, how is the meaning of this statement to be understood? So Venerable Sariputta responds, by saying, 
is, the, uh, is it the case that there is anything else? Is it the case that there is not anything else? Is it the case that there both is and is not anything else? Is it the case that there neither is nor is not anything else? One is differentiating non-differentiation. One is complicating the uncomplicated. Appapanchang papancheti is the Pali for that. You are complicating the uncomplicated. However far the range of the six sense spheres reaches, that is how far differentiation goes. However far differentiation goes, that is how and that is how far the range of the six sense spheres reaches. When the six sense spheres fade and cease without remainder, there is then the cessation, the allaying of differentiation. The Pali for one differentiating non-differentiation is appapanchang papancheti. Literally complicates the uncomplicated. Papancha is often taken to mean illusion. It also has the meaning of prolixity, talking too much, or conceptual proliferation. The Buddha is described as nipapancha, one who is free of this tendency. A key teaching on this subject is to be found in the Madhu Pindika Sutta, the honey ball, the sweet discourse, uh, uh, which was quoted in ch- chapter 6. So, in this uh, exchange, then Mahakotita is saying, you know, okay, when, when there's a complete um, letting go of the sense spheres, you know, is there, what, what else is there? Uh, is there anything there? And then, sorry, Buddha is basically saying, don't ask that. <laughs> because, um, uh, rather like Wittgenstein, uh, and, that, <coughs> and also that, that um, a statement of the Buddha um, that um, <coughs> the world, uh, what is the world? Uh, the eye is the world, the ear is the world, the nose is the world, the tongue is the world, the body is the world, the mind is the world. Um, <coughs> and he says, that in the world whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, that is called the world. So what that means in ordinary English is that I, I, I only experience my mind's version of the world. What you call the world is not the world. It's your world. It's your mind's representation. It's how, it, how your mind puts together seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Conditioned by your height, your gender, your language, your age, the century you're born in, the, whether you put your glasses on or not, whether you got your hearing aids in or not. It is. And even getting around the magic roundabout at the Hemel Hempstead. Even more incredible. <laughs> How do we do that? <laughs> with, with Dougal and Florence, right? So it's uh, <clears throat> the trying to talk about that which is outside the, 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 the field of our world. Even if you've got some kind of fancy machine that is a fantastic microscope that shows you what's sort of down at the subatomic level, it's still your mind that's reading the dials that says that's what's happening amongst the electrons and the protons and whatnot. So he's saying you can't talk about that which is not represented in the mind. It's meaningless to talk in those terms. And and this he comes up with this phrase, don't complicate the uncomplicated. <laughs> it's also um, that it's a, kind of one, a wonderful thing that one of the Buddha's epithets, the kind of titles or ways that the Buddha was known, as the uncomplicated one. So the Buddha, his mind was extraordinarily 
it's kind of infinitely wide-ranging in, in terms of knowledge, in terms of imagination, in terms of, of experience of different uh, realms, different times, you know, a fantastic uh, array of different perceptions and uh, experiences that the Buddha's mind was capable of. But yet he was known as the one free of, complica- uh, free of complication, Nipapancha. So all of that stuff that the Buddha's mind is able to be aware of was not complicated. <laughs> it was not in a, a, in a tangle. And so uh, we did give a, uh, one of our novices the name Nipapancho to encourage him towards that quality. <laughs> <laughs> because his mind was very, very capable of creating complication. So... Uh, he, he he ended up disrobing, but his email address is still Nipa Pancho. <laughs> <laughs> Working on it, right? But it's uh, so that that. But I feel that's a very um, it's very helpful advice. Is all these two sort of brother monks, like Sariputta, saying, you know, Sariputta could explain. You know, he had the incredible analytical understanding and capacity to explain things, and he's just. But he's right on the mark, saying. You're complicating the uncomplicated. It's, uh, you're, it's actually very, very simple. And, and the differentiation, talking about you know this and that and, and uh, the way things work, that is relevant up to where the six sense spheres operate. But outside of that, you can't you can't talk about that. And you're, the more you try and talk about that, the more you're going to be wider than that. You're really trying to figure out exactly where that newsreader lives in the TV, or where does. The fire go, you know, how many degrees to the north, how many degrees to the east, and you know, if we just keep thinking about it, we'll find out where the fire does go, or we'll, just, we'll you know, define exactly where that newsreader lives. But it's also it's wider than mark. Can't you can't you can't define it. You're making complications where it's uh, there isn't there really isn't one. So to continue with the last bit of the chapter. The encouragement that the Venerable Sariputta makes here not to apply a means beyond its natural limitations is also very apposite. There is an extremely strong tendency within most people to want to fill up the unknown, the ineffable, with a belief, with a hope or a fear, or as, with Anuradha and Yamaka, at least some kind of recognizable self-structure. In short, to complicate the supremely uncomplicated. As a final word here, <coughs> here is the Buddha who has been addressing the Venerable Ananda on insights into deluded views of self, culminating in liberation. So this is from uh, the Diga Nikaya, um, uh, Sutta number 15. Uh, this is Morris Walsh's translation. And if anyone were to say to a monk whose mind was thus freed that a targeter exists after death, that will be seen by him as a wrong opinion and unfitting. Likewise, the Tathagata does not exist, both exists and does not exist, neither exists nor does not exist after death. Why so? As far ananda as designation and the range of designation reaches, as far as language and the range of language reaches, as far as concepts and the range of concepts reaches, as far as understanding and the range of understanding reaches, as far as the cycle, the uh, vata, the sansara, reaches and revolves, that monk is liberated from all that by super-knowledge, abhinya, 
and to maintain that such a liberated monk does not know and see would be a wrong view and incorrect. This last clause is referring to an accusation that if a monk refuses to go along with any of the four elements of the classic quadrilemma, is, is not, both is, and is not, neither is, nor is not, he therefore does not really know what lies beyond the extent of designation, language and concepts. The fact is that if he is indeed fully enlightened, he does know and see what lies beyond. However, he may not speak of it since it also lies beyond the realm of expressibility. The next chapter deals with the Buddha's skill in sustaining this manner of approach of not allowing concept and language to trespass beyond their appointed bounds, particularly in relationship to the nature of the enlightened once the life of the body has reached its end. So the next chapter is... Uh, <clears throat> so if it was hard enough to follow while the Buddha is still alive, uh, the next chapter deals with um, what uh, uh, the ways that the Buddha spoke and, um, after the, the body has uh, passed away. And it's called reappears does not apply. So that. <laughs> so if you thought chapter ten was hard going, eleven's even even tougher. Both t uh, it's, it's both tougher and not tougher. <laughs> Neither tougher nor not tougher. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> but that's also uh, Morris Walsh's translations are very readable and, and easy and. Uh, uh, and he's a very practical translator. He and he did this. Um, he did the translation of the Diganikaya on the encouragement of uh, um, Venerable Ananda Maitreya. Actually, he didn't. He wasn't even a Pali scholar, uh, Morris. He was. A, he was a dedicated Buddhist, but he, and he was a scholar of medieval German. Actually, he he did the translation of Meister Eckhart, a standard translation of Meister Eckhart. So his field was medieval German, but he said. Um, <coughs> That uh, Venerable Ananda Maitreya said, you know, we really don't have a good translation of the Diganikaya. It would be very suitable if an eminent English-speaking Buddhist, who's gifted with languages, made a proper translation. Mm -hmm. That would be of great benefit, Mr. Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Morris, very good month. So he had to really kind of get his Pali going to. To do it, but he's a, it's a very very readable, and so this um, uh, this way that he phrases it here, I think, is very helpful. Yeah, as far and under as designation and the range of designation reaches, as far as language and the range of language reaches, as far as concepts and the range of concepts reaches, as far as understanding and the range of understanding reaches, as far as the cycle reaches and revolves, the monk that monk is liberated from all that by super knowledge. And to maintain that such a liberated monk does not know and see would be a wrong view and incorrect. So he's saying, yeah, that that's there is a limit that language and concepts and that that's, there's a limit that that can go to, and that and you you, you can't go beyond that boundary. You know, you don't apply. <laughs> the place doesn't apply. All all the the usual reference points don't apply past that border. It it, it ceases to be meaningful. But you can't say. That, that beyond that border is not knowable, it's just not expressible. Uh, beyond the realm of expressibility, another very long English word. So I hope that's um, food for thought. <laughs>
and reflection for this evening. I'll leave it there for tonight.